Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 12th of October, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by David Scott reporting from Jerusalem. Uh, we're also joined by Alex Thompson, who is back in the UK. And we've got our very own Debbie Evans, nursing correspondent, who will be talking to us from the depths of Cornwall. Well, we're going to kick off straight away with really the uh, continued chaos in the financial and economic system. And of course, we've now still got trouble with uh, bonds and bond pur purchases. So, David, I'm going to bring you in straight away. Uh, you're overseas at the moment, but uh, clearly keep, keeping a watchful eye on what's happening with matters to do with uh, money and the bond markets. Money in the bond markets, and it's it's blowing up in in Britain and the Bank of England, but it's the same threats and stresses are visible the world over. So here we see the Financial Times reporting uh, that the the Bank of England, as we predicted uh, just a few days ago, a few weeks ago, are going to prolong their bond purchases. So the officials have indicated that the that they're having a flexible approach if market volatility flares up. Uh, despite barely warning, there's only three days left of uh, Bank of England money printing and bond purchases to support the market. This is related to problems in the, the insurance and uh, and pensions industries. Uh, barely speaking, an event organised by the Institute of International Finance said that uh, the central bank intervention would be out by the end of the week. Right. David, just, um, just for viewers who might not be terribly au fait with matters to do with the bonds issuing and uh, issuing of bonds and what it's all about. Just a few seconds, explain to us what is actually going on here and why we should pay attention uh, to all matters it's, around. It, yes, it, it shows the strain that the whole, the whole, uh, the whole financial system is under. Uh, it's come from zero interest rate policy. So to support the to support the economy after the big crash and through COVID, interest rates were set at essentially zero. Pension funds and others couldn't get a return, so had to go basically taking on risk and taking on more exotic ways of getting a return, all of which were leveraged, heavily leveraged off of Bank of England debt, uh, sorry, UK government debt, uh, treasury debt. Uh, guilts and such like. Now that the price of that debt is going down, this leaves all the all the uh, pension funds and other other financial organisations with a huge problem. They are being hit by margin calls. They've got to make up their losses. They don't have enough cash, and they're running around to try and find it. And the Bank of England is helpfully printing a good deal of it, buying more uh, UK government debt on the free market to put. Um, liquid cash into the institutions that are now under strain. So that's what's happening. Um, one banker here, the Financial Times reports, um, said if the market gets into trouble, they will have to open the program again. So this is this is in response to Bailey saying that after three days we're closing this program down. And this bank is quite rightly saying that that's not true. He said that making uh, strong comments as he did only creates a much bigger cliff edge, only creates more tension. But the but the the issue is, if the market fails, they have to print. They have to do more quantitative easing. It's the only tool they've got. That's where we've got to. Right, okay. And of course, in all these things, pensions are of great interest to a great many people, uh, but it would appear pensions are not entirely safe either. 
A lot of this relates to pensions, and uh, if if you have a pension and you think that you're entirely safe in in this system, you're wrong. Uh, there's a huge risk of, of big losses there. Whether the people who have paid in all all of their lives to pensions will ever see a penny remains to be seen. Okay, and uh, we had a headline here: the Naked Emperor's newsletter financial crash. Bank of England warns pension funds you've three days left to rebalance. So. Uh, this is uh, the detail starting to come out now. Yeah, this was a, a, a piece that Alex had spotted covering the same area, but quite an astute um, uh, sort of commentary piece on this. Perhaps Alex would like to say a few words. Yes, if we keep that on screen a moment, you can see in the middle that it is the purchasing of index linked gilts, which is at the heart of this problem with the pension funds uh, liquidity. Uh, Index-linked gilts, as we read in the final sentence on screen, are another product typically held by pension funds, which are the source of all the panic. Um, and the uh, Bank of uh, England has uh, warned of a material risk to UK financial stability. And there's a couple of graphs to go with the Naked Emperor's newsletter to show the yield uh, on 10-year bonds. So this is an indication uh, of uh, it's, it, it goes the wrong way, uh, uh, counterintuitive way. The higher it is, the less confidence. David will correct me if I get this wrong. But the, the higher it, this index is, the less confidence. Yes, he's, he's nodding. That's correct. The less confidence there is in the market. So you can see that shooting up. There's a further graph uh, for a 30-year bond. Uh, this is before the Bank of England intervention at the beginning uh, of uh, or last week. Uh, yes, the beginning of this week now. Uh, and then there's a bit more text as well, if you tap that again, uh, indicating that the pension fund trade body basically told Bailey to have another think, to catch himself on, as they say in some parts of the country, when he told uh, pension fund managers in Washington, D.C., that we'll be out by Friday. Um, I had to cut out the bottom of the screen because uh, this being a blog spot, uh, or a Substack blog, um, there's a, there's some ripe language, but basically the accurate summary here by the Naked Emperor, the blogger, is that the markets told Bailey, you are under our control. So the final graphic, if you tap once more, will show, uh, can you guess at which point um, Bailey made his comments and the market responded? So I'll hand back to David on that because he may have some comments on the graphs. Uh, Alex, just briefly. Sorry, that, I... that's, the, that's the cable rate. That's, that's the pounds to dollar rate rather than a bond yield on screen at the moment. Okay, Alex, if I can just interject there. Um, very interesting. We've got discussions about who, who controls Bailey. And uh, this, is, this, of course, is one of the points I was making a few days ago when we were talking about the Bank of England. Uh, is the government in control of the Bank of England or other people in control of the Bank of England? Who controls Bailey? I think that's one for David, although I do know that it is perennially debated. At the moment, there's a polite conversation going on between Rainer Fulmich and Rodney Atkinson over this very question. Who holds the whip hand in the city of London? But David is dying to come in on this point. Yes, I mean, this is the, this is the, the hole that Bailey and the Bank of England have dug for themselves. And the Bank of England is ultimately controlled by the Treasury. But none of these people are in control of anything anymore because they've, they've, they've printed money, they've puffed up the economy, they've caused a bubble in almost everything, and the only thing that's keeping it up is continued money printing. The minute they stop, things start to collapse. They cannot endure the collapse. Therefore, they have to keep money printing. So I, I, think, it's, I think you're possibly being optimistic, Brian, if you think anybody is in control now. If you imagine if you imagine an oil tanker with everyone on the bridge dead, 
and it's heading towards like a, a, a pier or or, or, a, or a rocky coastline. That's that's about where we're at. That's about where we're at. And of course, the result is in soft ground. It ends up about three miles inland before the momentum dissipates. Um, well, a... you've, <laughs> you've been having a look at um, uh, Financial Times and Lebanon uh, as your in area, as it were. What have you got here? Yes, I picked this up in the local press and then, then went hunting for it. So Lebanon's uh, adjusting its currency peg. For 25 years, it's been pegged to the dollar at, at 1,507 Lebanese pounds to the dollar, right? So they're having a small adjustment, kind of, right? The, the adjustment is to take it from 1,507 to 15,000 Lebanese pounds to the dollar. So that, that lets you know how Lebanon's currency has been doing of late. But um, it's a little more complicated than that. So if you go to the next slide, uh, so this is Al-Monitor. This is a, a, a Middle East um, uh, news site. And they're reporting that, yes, it's, we're going to shift the official lira rate, but it's not quite um, in one phase. It's in two phases. So first, we're going to shift the official exchange rate for everything to do with taxes, because this will increase government revenue. But we're not going to shift the rate for anything to do with banks. So the banks get to value their assets and liabilities at 1,507 liras or pounds to the dollar. I, the people who pay taxes have to have to pay taxes based on fifteen thousand liters or pounds to the dollar. And if you, if I don't know if perhaps caught on the the Financial Times, uh, uh, the first piece we showed there, it it says what the black market rate is, which is the free market rate. That's thirty eight and a half thousand um, uh, 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 Lebanese pounds to the dollar. So if you're an ordinary person. And you want a dollar? It's going to cost you thirty and a half thousand, right? If you're if you're paying your taxes and it's fifteen thousand, but if you're a bank, it's one thousand five hundred and seven. So it's an interesting example of uh, the fact that uh, we're all equal, but some are more equal than others. And David, my immediate thought is: Does the Lebanon Lebanon Central Bank is it involved with the Bank of International Settlements? I can't remember from the list of I think it was sixty three. Uh, of the world's national banks that are involved with the Bank of International Settlements, Bank for International Settlements, um, uh, hand. But uh, I wonder whether they've got a finger in this pie as well. I think that'll take a little bit more research. Well, Alex, sorry, David, do you want to come back? No, no, I don't have I don't have that information for you at the moment, but I'll try and get that for you. Okay. Uh, well, Alex, I think you're going to take us on to uh, matters in Germany here. So alongside financial and economic troubles, we've got energy problems. What are you picking up uh, from the German side? Well, Greta Thunberg, who is, I think, still technically a teenager, uh, has been talking to Die Welt, which has a little more honest reporting than the rest of the German mainstream media, but that's not saying much. And here she has been carried by other foreign uh, read broadcasters of this information tongue-in-cheek as having said I give you permission Germany to uh, not to switch off your uh, nuclear power stations signed Greta so the headline here is a bit more uh, equivocal than that it says Greta Thunberg calls it a mistake for Germany to be considering turning off its nuclear power stations uh, but she's very much uh, in control and this is actually a 
rewrite by Die Welt of a behind a paywall piece in the uh, magazine Der Stern, which was mentioned in the leak that we still have on the front page of ukcolumn.org as one of the key collaborating bodies in the German mainstream media, uh, getting the message right on uh, Russia and Ukraine. And I had to leave this in because I thought either Brian or Debbie would almost certainly have a comment on this one eye of Greta covered in uh, an oil slick illustration. And the headline of this behind a paywall interview in Dash Den, which was written up by Develt on the previous slide, is, quote, it's funny that people think of me as a raging teenager who can't laugh, but she's not laughing there. And I do wonder about her state of health posing for, question, for, for uh, coverage like that. Yes, and it's an interesting question altogether when we have, I'm going to call her a child, right? She may be just moving into adulthood, but essentially we have a child. Apparently the world should be paying attention to what a child thinks about some very compl uh, complicated uh, situations. Um, Debbie, we've, we've mentioned this young lady before, but she's being used, isn't she? Yeah, 100%. And, you know, that, that picture that you just saw with the black gloop over it, um, I think this is following a theme because I think there have been other fairly well-known names who have posed for similar pictures with this black gloop over them, which seems to be um, a pretty dark sign. And And yes, of course, I mean, anybody that's coming out with what she's coming out with and has been from a very early age, is definitely being maneuvered and groomed into a position and um you know on on one hand people despise her many people despise her and what she said and on on, on the other hand many people welcome what she says and and treat her as a as some kind of heroine so for me she's as what alex said right at the very beginning she's a teenager she is still a teenager Okay, we'll leave her in that bracket then and the tantrums that go with it. Um, so, David, um, uh, you've got very interested and you've got a video clip here of somebody, well, I was going to say somebody else um, throwing their toys out the pram, I think, but maybe they're justified. What, what is this one about? Oh, oh, I think they're justified. This is Tulsi Gabbard. Now, we've, we've covered her quite a bit, some time ago, because she was a, a candidate for the uh, nomination for president for the Democratic Party. Uh, she was uh, chasing that prize along with uh, Biden uh, et al. And she wasn't successful, but she, she was in the race for quite a long time. So she's a, 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 a serious and important politician in the uh, Democratic Party in America, or, or rather she was. Um, she was always a bit of an outlier because she was anti-war. And the reason we liked her is she was speaking out against warmongering and against policies that simply promoted more war and not more peace. Uh, well, she's had enough and she's left the Democratic Party. And this is, this is her uh, brief summary as to why. I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that's under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers who were driven by cowardly wokeness who divide us by racializing every issue and stoking anti-white racism, who actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution, who are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, who demonize the police but protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, 
who believe in open borders, who weaponize the national security state to go after their political opponents, and above all, who are dragging us ever closer to nuclear war. Now, I believe in a government that's of the people, by the people, and for the people. Unfortunately, today's Democratic Party does not. Instead, it stands for a government that is of, by, and for the powerful elite. Now, I'm calling on my fellow common sense, independent-minded Democrats to join me in leaving the Democratic Party. If you can no longer stomach the direction that the so-called woke Democratic Party ideologues are taking our country, then I invite you to join me. Well, David, that wasn't that magnificent. Uh, that's, that's quite some speech. It does seem that we've got cracks appearing in the establishments, whether it's in the US or UK or indeed in Europe. And uh, people who are starting to break ranks need some encouragement if they're uh, not only saying the right things, but doing the right things alongside it. Now this, this is building on a previous campaign where people were saying, just walk away, walk away from the Democrats. But that list, uh, serving the elite, uh, unrestrained wokeness, um, anti-white racism, hostile to faith, protecting criminals, believing in open borders and promoting war. Uh, that is quite a list because most of those uh, would apply to a very large part of the political spectrum in the UK. OK, well, if that's um, uh, speaking out that we've just seen a number of people flagged up to the UK column uh, an MEP, Rob uh, Rose, speaking out. And we're going to show this video straight off. It changes the subject. We're going to head into matters to do with the pharmaceutical industry. But uh, I think this is a gentleman who's had some courage to say what needs saying. Let's have a listen to this clip. If you don't get vaccinated, you're antisocial. This is what the Dutch Prime Minister and Health Minister told us. You don't get vaccinated just for yourself, but also for others. You do it for all of society. That's what I said. Today, this turned out to be complete nonsense. In a COVID hearing in the European Parliament, one of the Pfizer directors just admitted to me, at the time of introduction, the vaccine had never been tested on stopping the transmission of the virus. This removes the entire legal basis for the COVID passport the COVID passport that led to massive institutional discrimination as people lost access to essential parts of society. I find this to be shocking, even criminal. Please watch the video until the end. For you, Mevrouw Small, have I the following question, where I want a clear answer. And I will speak in English so there are no misunderstandings. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it entered the market? No, uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. This is scandalous. Millions of people worldwide felt forced to get vaccinated because of the myth 
that you do it for others. Now this turned out to be a cheap lie. This should be exposed. Please share this video. Well, there we have it. So, Alex, I'll bring you in here. What, uh, what's your take on this? And can you tell us something about the reaction in Holland, at least? There's been plenty in the Netherlands. It's not by chance, Brian, that it's been the Netherlands that has uh, had this uh, MEP, Rob Rose, speak uh, and ask this question, because he is one of the splinters from Thierry Baudet's Forum for Democracy party. And many faults, though they may allegedly have, this is, uh, I think, a party that can be, uh, with its stable of dissidents that have broken away from it, that can be fairly said to be in the vanguard in the whole of the Western world on asking difficult questions. So Rob Rose did an accompanying tweet and said, get vaccinated for others was always a lie. And the only purpose of the COVID passport was forcing people to get vaccinated. Now, the, the Dutch are touchingly, um, I would almost say naive at times, although they're prepared to give people the benefit of the doubt, but only once. And they take social conscience pretty seriously, particularly the likes of Mr. Rose from a Christian conservative background. And if you cross them, you're going to know about it. So another of the politicians who split away from Thierry Baudet's Forum for Democracy uh, is Eva Flaudinger-Bruck, the uh, very beautiful uh, and uh, witty lady who now appears very regularly on Mark Stein on GB News. And here was her response to it. Eva Flaudinger-Bruck said, this is major indisputable proof of the fact that our government lied to us. And again, the Dutch don't say this lightly. You don't call people a liar in Dutch political circles without really meaning it. She says it was all about control and we, the unvaccinated, who knew all along, were ostracised, shamed and vilified for it. I would just pause to say it does me good as a linguist to see that a few Dutch politicians can use English this well. And yes, they tend to be the dissidents. She says, I haven't forgotten what they did. Neither should you. It's time for justice. Now, we have a couple of uh, video responses of fulminations regarding this. The first comes from the uh, plenary. Uh, sorry, no, they're, they're, they're actually from the, uh, the committee hearings uh, uh, involved. And the first one is actually a press call by Christian Terhesh, a Romanian MEP, uh, who, like Flaudinger Brook and like the second MEP we're about to play, Christina Anderson, have all spent significant time in the States. So they've picked up, in, in the best sense of the word, the combative adversarial political culture as well as the good English. That's what's made them a big rock in the pond uh, of European politics, where uh, typically one doesn't rock the boat this much. So first of all, Christian Terhesh, who studied in a seminary in California and was then a journalist, people will know his passionate rhetoric from previous press calls he's done, standing on side, alongside Virginie Joron from France and, uh, and other MEPs. Here he is uh, talking about just how badly he feels let down by this. Because what we found out yesterday when one of my colleagues asked if they tested, in this case Pfizer, if Pfizer tested, if their medical product is stopping the spread of the virus, we were shocked to find out yesterday that they haven't tested their vaccine to see if it's stopping the spread of the virus. So we are now more than a year after the green certificate, the digital green certificate was imposed in the European Union and people were forced to be vaccinated with a medical product in order to exercise their basic fundamental rights. And they were told and we were told we were voted against the green certificate, but many of our colleagues voted in favor of it because they believe what these companies have said, that if you get vaccinated, 
you will not be infected, and you will not spread the virus. They even ran campaign and said, get vaccinated in order to keep your grandmother and your parents healthy. And we find out now, after more than a year, that when they requested the special marketing authorization, they haven't tested the vaccine to see if it's stopping the spread of the virus. So I'm asking again, and we are asking again, what are they going to hide? What do they hide exactly? Why aren't they transparent with their medical product? We heard yesterday, I mean, it was, I was shocked. So as you can see, that was from the European Parliament's now quite well-known press call, uh, press conference centre. Uh, Terhesh there with fireworks, uh, a, a multinational coalition of MEPs from different parties and blocs expressing the same concerns. This, of course, is the same man who held up the completely blanked out uh, contract that he was shown as a representative of the people that had been signed between the European Commission, the EU's uh, civil service uh, and Pfizer. Uh, and now we're going to see uh, with a, a Flemish MEP in the chair, uh, Christina Andersen from Alternativa für Deutschland, as an MEP on the European Union, uh, European Parliament's COVID inquiry committee, saying this is such a farce, Madam Chairman, that we should, uh, uh, on the point of order, we should find ourselves incompetent to judge what went on, because von der Leyen and Pfizer have been laughing all the way to the, the contract signing and the bank and haven't actually told us anything. You'll see that she wasn't able to lodge this point of order in the clip that now follows. Mrs. Anderson, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is quite ridiculous what we're doing here. And pursuant to Article 200 and, uh, Rule 211 of the rules, uh, rules of Procedure, I am proposing that this committee declares itself incompetent in getting clarification on the content of the contracts between EU Commission and pharmaceutical companies with regards to the mRNA vaccines in general and the exchange of text messages between Ursula von der Leyen, President of EU Commission, and Mr. Borla, CEO of Pfizer in particular. It is quite you, obvious in today's Mrs. Anderson, proceedings... Mrs. Anderson, we'll put that on the agenda no, of no, the No, 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 I will raise my point of order now, and according to the rules, you will have to let me continue. Okay, you continue. Thank you. It but is not, quite not obvious. More than a minute, not more than a minute. You don't have to make full statements. Okay, Just... this committee lacks the authority to get to the bottom of crucial questions. The fact that Mr. Borla, CEO of Pfizer, had the audacity to refuse to appear in front of this committee to answer questions constitutes a gross disregard for the people whose tax money he took, by the way. If we cannot compel a crucial player to appear in front of this committee, then this committee is useless. So I propose that we declare ourselves incompetent, and I furthermore propose that this committee concludes the need for a, a committee of inquiry and formally requests the Conference of Presidents to initiate the necessary steps to propose uh, the okay. EU Parliament in setting up such a committee as provided in Rule 208 in conjunction with Article 226 of the Treaty uh, on the Functioning of the European Union to ensure the peoples of Europe's right to democratic okay, Anderson, now I, recourse. I and finally, I request the roll call vote on these uh, proposals. Thank you very much. We will we will have a discussion at the coordinators, and of course the ID group can go to the Conference of Presidents. Can I remind this committee, this is not an investigating committee. Exactly. This is a special committee. 
um, and this falls not within um, well, the remits of uh, this committee. So okay. we will have a discussion in the coordinators and the ID group no, can Madam Chair, take I just all the initiatives raised, towards raised the, the point of, of order. Presidents. And now I cut you off. This is it. Okay? Okay, we will have to vote on the, the declaration of in, uh, incompetency in this committee. That we can do. We will, we will have to look at the coordinators and we will then decide how to proceed on the issue. So, in other words, you refuse to take the vote right now that yes, I just I proposed as a point of order. You refuse? Just yes Mrs. or no? Let me see. We will take that up at the coordinators and if, if, a necessary, is there a, if there a vote is necessary, we will come back to that. Don't okay. worry. So, we in other words, you refuse. All the procedures. Okay. Refuse to take a vote I on a point of now, order I raised. I give the floor just now for the record. to Mr. Thank Teres. You. I give the floor now to Mr. Teres. Thank you so much. So Terhesh, who you saw in the first clip, then followed. For those who don't follow the intricacies of the European Parliament, what's being mentioned here with the Conference of Coordinators is that um, it's not really a full parliament in a national sense. And certainly the committees don't have the competence, uh, or the Germans would call it competence of competences, to decide for themselves that certain things are within or without uh, their outside their competence. They have to get into a huddle. Uh, between the group leaders, the faction leaders, those are the coordinators that are being discussed there, and each of the factions will stitch something up, and then they'll go back to full session of the committee, and it, be, it will be presented as a fait accompli, uh, but Anderson's not having that. And as I stress again, the three people you've seen there, well, you didn't see footage of Flaudinger Brook, but you saw her tweet, they all spent significant parts of their life in the States. This is not random. This, they've actually understood that there's something deeply wrong with the way that European continental politics works, and they're not prepared to have that. Uh, I'm sure David's keen to come in on here. Well, just a couple of points I want to make here, just how huge this is. Firstly, the the original question to the Pfizer executive, she was completely at sea. Because what she said was, we were moving at the speed of science to understand what the marketplace, what was taking place in the marketplace, right? That that doesn't mean anything. That's That's just words. That's her mind trying to turn over and think about what she's actually going to say. And she couldn't think of anything and she had to tell the truth. Right? So that was a huge concession. And she was clearly completely thrown by the question. And the other point I'd like to make, just very quickly, we have an article about to go up on the subject of um, no prey zones around abortion clinics. But it happens to mention in this that the bishops in the United Kingdom stated, quote, the Catholic Church strongly supports vaccination and regards Catholics as having a prima facie duty to be vaccinated. So that shows you how much support the vaccination program was getting. And, of course, the reason for that was that it was saving other people. You were doing it to protect other people. Now we know that's garbage. All of these organisations who forced, coerced or encouraged their adherents in the case of the Roman Catholic Church or anyone else that could influence in case of businesses to get vaccinated are now left without any justification for what they've done. Indeed. Um, Debbie, just very quickly, because I'm going to be moving us on through through this subject, um, but uh, a Fausty lady, and um, we need people to actually stand up and be counted in this way. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, and I was sitting here applauding her. But you know what? Let's just remember that a vaccine, a traditional vaccine, the sort of thing that you would take before you go away on holiday, that's meant to protect you. 
It's not meant to protect the NHS. It's not meant to protect the health system of where the health service of wherever you're going. It's not intended to protect your granny. You know, this is so this was never a vaccine in the first place because a vaccine, a traditional vaccine is allegedly meant to protect you from getting something and to stop you from transmitting something. So why on earth are we meant to be protecting the NHS, which is already dead? And you know, as for Albert Bula not attending that, it's shocking because he was quick enough to attend the WEF, wasn't he, and speak to Klaus Schwab. All they're doing is propagating, note that word because it's gonna come up a lot in the future, propagating speed science. I mean, it's unfathomable, but a huge round of applause. Yes, that was well, well said. Well okay. said. Okay, thank you, Debbie. Alex, take us on through uh, some of the uh, reaction to this. We will, and uh, to copy the hand gesture of the Pfizer lady, I'll be moving at the speed of tweet through these comments. So, um, Lewis Brackpool, a well-known journalist, uh, says on Twitter, this should be one of the biggest stories in the world right now. Pfizer director, that was the lady you saw, not the, the, the head honcho Buller, but the Scouse underling, she admits the vaccine was never intended to prevent prevent transmission even before it was rolled out to the public. This has to be one of the biggest scams in recent history. Neil Oliver uh, of GB News, respond to this and there must not to that tweet but to the news there must be criminal investigations now and charges and trials if not we do not have the rule of law for which see a dissident's guide to the constitution under the series menu on ukcolumn.org and says neil oliver all bets are off uh, uh, Mislav Kolokosic, uh, an mep from croatia who's been associated with those concerned meps you saw in the press call says the purchase of four and a half billion doses of the COVID-19 vaccine for a tenth of that number, sorry, a, 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 a much smaller uh, figure, yes, a, t a tenth of that number of uh, EU residents, uh, 450 million EU residents, is the biggest corruption scandal in the history of mankind. They're not pulling their punches. Uh, Catherine W on Twitter uh, starts off by uh, tweet uh, by uh, tagging UK column and then a couple of others whom she rates highly and then the mainstream. Uh, with this news and she says i tagged the real journalists first mainstream media i expect you'll try to bury this but the truth will come out you will all be held to account and there's a comment piece on the ukcolumn.org homepage about journalists believing their own lies um matt Letitia, uh with whom we have an interview in the can that debbie has done with him uh also responded to the news saying how much taxpayers money was spent on the advertising campaign encouraging you to save granny you should be fuming at your government they knew it was unrepeatable word for nonsense and then very quickly mellow b33 who has a substack blog uh has written these comments which i won't read out but you can just uh tap that again uh it's a nine tweet thread uh, talking about the breaking of the social contract, a fundamental idea in political philosophy. The summer of, summary of the thread is what we're dealing with is the greatest betrayal of trust that's ever happened in human history. And the next slide shows how people can get to the Substack blog, which I'd recommend, Trust and Betrayal, How to Destroy, Take Over and Transform Society When No One Is Watching, uh, written by that same person, Mellow B33. Uh, a final uh, health point from me in this segment, uh, as we're talking about COVID jabs, Jean Lassalle, who is misspelt on this still, unfortunately, it's spelt the French way like Jean in English, um, is uh, a French parliamentarian who was actually very pro-EU. He's uh, 
He's uh, formed his own parliamentary group a few years ago, uh, but he's given a frank interview on NTD in France, saying in the still that's on screen at the moment in subtitles in English, I felt I had to get jabbed because as a member of parliament, I didn't want to give the feeling that I wasn't doing my job. But he said that he then realised, this is his allegation, that neither Macron nor Johnson nor a host of other politicians had, and as many uh, of his fellow members of the Assemblée Nationale in Paris, they hadn't actually got jabbed, is his allegation. Yeah. Uh, it is, uh, well, in one, one sense is incredible, but on the other hand, the truth is clearly coming up to the surface. And uh, my comment is always that we need to be supporting people who are standing up um, to bring the truth to the surface or speaking out or challenging the system. These are the people that we need to support. Well, let's switch from that back to David Scott. And you've been uh, looking at all matters to do with inquiries. Um, COVID-19 inquiry, does that give you a warm feeling? Well, you should you should feel reassured, Brian, because the Scottish government are investigating COVID-19 and, and we're going to have a completely independent inquiry. It's been running for about nine months now. It's going to be completely independent. It's been also very silent, but it's it's been running and uh, it's not gone well. So you see the Daily Record, the chair of the Scotland's, of Scotland's COVID-19 inquiry steps down for personal reasons. Don't ask me what it is. I'm sure she's got very good reasons which are entirely personal and nothing to do with anything else. Uh, so it's Lady Poole. She gave notice on Friday of her intention to step down, citing personal reasons. Um, and uh, uh, her purpose, her job was to scrutinise the Scottish government's decisions, including ones that will perhaps be influenced about with the information that we've just covered right there. Uh, and then we have the Herald uh, continues to uh, report this. Um, and, well, it transpired that that statement that, that she was stepping down for personal reasons wasn't quite true. Scotland's COVID inquiry was thrown into chaos after mass resignations. What actually happened was many senior lawyers quit en masse, and that led to the chairwoman stepping down as she had lost the confidence of those she was working with. Reports suggest that lead counsel Douglas Ross KC and three junior counsel resigned last Thursday, prompting Lady Poole to quit as chairwoman. Uh, Deputy First, uh, First Minister John Swinney announced that Lady Poole's resignation was due to personal reasons. So there's John Swinney lying to us again. How do you know when John Swinney is lying? It's obviously when his lips are moving. Um, and then, then we started to have questions about, well, what actually had gone on here? Was it political interference? So the Scotsman covered this. The Scotsman said John Swinney denies political interference in the Scottish COVID inquiry following all those resignations. He said there was absolutely no political interference in the, in the Scottish COVID-19 public inquiry, um, I, despite the fact that all the resignations happened and the families have been left, the families of the bereaved, have been left feeling betrayed. Now, we'll just very quickly uh, remind ourselves that we've been here before. We had uh, an independent Scottish child abuse inquiry. Uh, this was led by uh, Susan O'Brien QC, and she was forced out of her post by none other than John Swinney. And in her resignation letter, which has mysteriously vanished from the Scottish government website, uh, she said... Uh, to uh, Mr. Swinney, since you've approached the dismissal of a chair so casually on the basis of a misunderstanding and inaccurate allegations about my attitudes and beliefs, 
with regards to survivors of child abuse. I have no confidence that you will not try to dismiss me again another time, even if you decide against dismissal. Now, I cannot uh, reassure the public that this inquiry will be conducted independently of government. My trust that the Scottish Government will actually respect the independence of the inquiry has gone. You have therefore left me with no terms of but to resign. I wonder if something like that has happened in the background of this inquiry too. Perhaps in a week or two or a month or two, we may find out. Uh, David, I'm, yeah, I'm sure that's the case. I've reinforced my point that uh, here we've got members of the judiciary appointed uh, to carry out these roles. Even they don't want to be involved in what's happening and they're resigning. So we may not support uh, uh, people from uh, legal position in lots of ways. They've been very slow to stand up and challenge a lot of wrongdoing at government level, whether it's been in Scotland or England or Wales. Uh, but when we see them doing the right thing, this is a good sign. Now, just before we leave you, David, I think you've got a little bit of comment about uh, what's been happening locally. You are there in the Middle East and as usual, uh, people are dying. This is uh, very tragic. Yes, yeah, so there's been a, there's been a lot of tension, and it's been getting it's been getting steadily worse. So here we see uh, Haaretz uh, reporting a 14 year old amongst two Palestinian teens killed within hours of each other by uh, IDF Israeli Defence Force fire in the West Bank. Um, a widely circulated video: uh, the Israeli soldiers appeared to be attacking paramedics and others trying to evacuate one of the victims from the scene near Ramallah. Palestinian witness say the clashes with the soldiers um, broke out as villagers were trying to stop an attack by settlers on a house in the village. Another resident of the village told Harris that uh, the clash was uh, due when vill villagers attempted to prevent the settlers uh, who arrived accompanied by the army from using a spring that they had been coming to on a weekly basis. So the, the issue here is, is twofold. One, this is about 106 Palestinians, mostly young men, sometimes a lot of teenagers, sometimes very much children, have been killed this year alone. It's a huge death toll, and you can imagine this is constantly cranking up the tension. Uh, it is, by comparison, less than the death toll in Philadelphia in America this year, but it's still enormous. Um, and, and there's starting to be much more hostile reaction. We see in the next slide here an IDF uh, Sergeant Noah uh, Lazar, 18-year-old girl, uh, killed in a drive-by shooting at a checkpoint near Jerusalem, uh, just just shy of her birthday. So you see, the, and that's not been the only drive-by shooting in uh, this week um, and, uh, and targeting uh, checkpoints around about the Jerusalem area. So you can see the the, the tension and the death toll are, are increasing um, and there is uh, no political initiative in sight whatsoever. Okay, David, um, very sad. What do most people want to do when they get up in the morning? They want to get on with their lives. And yet we have this constant migration into death and war, which is happening across the planet. Uh, that leads us into um, some really incredible information, which is now coming out about the supposedly Ukrainian attack on the Kersh Bridge, the bridge over into Crimea. Um, Alex, the grey zone has done some really uh, really interesting investigation into this. And I know a number of people are picking up on their report. It's their star writer, Kit Klarenberg, and they've clearly got excellent sources tipping them off, in this case, on email traffic. And they've had that a few times before on what's happening in the, well, the name says it of all, the grey zone between formal British serving intelligence 
and the men who get things done on the ground. Uh, before we go through this, it's very important to point out two things. One, that the footage of the suicide, or maybe it was a Northern Ireland-style forced suicide truck bomb, uh, does suggest that there were two cruise missiles hitting the bridge as well. I'm not saying that definitively, but I've seen enough uh, people uh, making that judgment soundly, uh, coolly. And the second thing to point out is that what you're about to see, the, the harebrained scheme to get rid of the bridge, is from April and does not have the same technical characteristics as what actually was done in the last few days. But with that, back to you to take us through this. Well, OK, we're, well, we're picking up on the report itself, encourage people to go to the to, to the grey zone to actually uh, uh, read through this. Um, if we just uh, bring the initial header for the article up, apologies, I see I've made grey <laughs> with an E there. But um, uh, essentially, they're saying that the roadmap to destroy the bridge was produced by Hugh Ward, a British military veteran. A number of strategies for helping Ukraine pose a threat to Russian naval forces in the Black Sea were also outlined. And the overriding objectives, as stated, uh, were aiming to degrade Russia's ability to blockade Kiev, erode Moscow's warfighting capability, and isolate Russian land and maritime forces in Crimea by denying resupply by sea and overland via the Kirsch Bridge. So remember that this is coming from the hand of uh, UK and deep state people. And um, uh, the main story starts with Grey Zone saying it had obtained uh, an April 2022 presentation drawn up for senior British intelligence officers hashing out an elaborate scheme to blow up Crimea's Kersh Bridge with the involvement of specially trained Ukrainian soldiers. Almost six months after the plan was circulated, Kersh Bridge was attacked in an October 8th suicide bombing, apparently overseen by Ukraine's SBU intelligence services. Detailed proposals for providing audacious support to Kiev's maritime raiding operations were drafted at the request of Chris Donnelly, a senior British Army intelligence operative and veteran high-ranking NATO advisor. The wide-ranging plan's core component was destruction of the bridge over the Kerr Strait. Now, before we, before we get into a little bit more of the detail, including taking a look at a couple of the sections of emails that uh, the Grey Zone gave us, uh, what are your thoughts on Chris Donnelly's name coming up, Alex? Well, Chris Donnelly is a senior military intelligence, and then he found, founded a think tank. In fact, a couple of them, you can find both of them mentioned in the Grey Zone piece. Uh, more well known is the network uh, called the Integrity Initiative, but there's also a think tank in whom a Lithuanian will feature uh, in the end, who is a senior, has for years been a senior fellow, I don't believe current anymore, but was a senior fellow in that think tank. Chris Donnelly, when our own David Scott went to research the disused mill in Fife that was owned by the uh, Integrity Initiative's uh, master organisation, was the guy pulling the strings with a bit of plausible deniability because, as I understand, he was not al already by that stage a few years ago no longer serving but able to produce his schemes in secret. But one of the uh, corollaries of that is that when he, he uh, uh, tapped up his mates for idea, whiz ideas on making things go bang and making it look like Eastern Europeans who'd done it, um, he was able, not able to use classified email. 
So we can bring up the first one and you'll see that uh, this is all in the same gray zone piece that will be in the show notes uh, by Kit Klarenberg. You can see that uh, the, the Hugh whom you mentioned, uh, a senior military intelligence operative, um, has come up with the attachment and said, please protect uh, this attachment. He's been de delayed by a funeral in getting it to Donnelly. And Donnelly, with a bit of a man crush, says, thanks, Hugh. Very impressive indeed. I'm in London and I'm going to meetings. We'll uh, cogitate and get back to you as soon as possible. X, 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 X. Yes, exactly the, ki the, kiss bond, is, is the kisses are strange, very strange, um, Alex. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I I've been in the fringe of some of these circles and I know that they say things to each other like, love you, man, and you're the best. But this is a, this is overdoing it a bit. Uh, shall we go on to the next one? Because there's Indeed, several yes. we want to get through in a limited time. So let's bring the next one on screen, which is um, uh, here. This is where Audrius uh, from Lithuania gets involved because Donnelly is able to put the uh, former Lithuanian defense minister, whom you will see shortly on screen, in touch with Hugh, the British uh, uh, dreamer of the uh, of the scheme. And remember, this is an April version of going, getting rid of the bridge, which significantly came at the previous time when the Ukrainians seemed very likely to be uh, about to agree a, a, a truce, a ceasefire with the Russians. And that's something that they can't abide, of course, in these circles in London. So that's why the, the thing was first cooked up in April and rather tellingly has happened in real life at a similar juncture now. Um, so that, that that's uh, what part of the traffic and they've had the decency to black out his personal details is that Donnelly actually sent his passport ID page, Christopher Nidal Donnelly, British citizen, uh, somebody that uh, I know that Mike Robinson has uh, seen in, in real life at uh, parliamentary committee meetings. And I think Donnelly was rather surprised to see uh, Mike there. And if we go forward one, we will see uh, the gentleman of interest, Adrius Vukovicius, who, as I said a moment ago, was formerly Lithuania's uh, defense minister. He then went to the Ukraine, where he was listed in the integrity initiatives list at the time of a couple of years ago when it was leaked. Our men in Eastern Europe and Spain and so on who get things done for us in the media. Um, he was listed, although he's Lithuanian, as the top man in the Ukrainian network. So he had his own network, according to the Grey Zone piece, of Ukrainian operatives who would get things done. Uh, and the piece does name, I won't do it now, but the, the, the piece in the Grey Zone names uh, the gentleman in MI6 who is said to be the link man between Chris Donnelly uh, and the um, uh, and Vukovicius, uh, the Lithuanian who got the team on the ground to do certain things. No, no insinuation that he actually made anything go bang, but it all looks rather well set up, doesn't it? Uh, it's or it's an amazing, an amazing, a truly amazing coincidence, as often seems to happen around these operations. I'll just say, Alex, um, it's nice to see it. They're getting a little bit of sun on your screen, so. I don't know whether you're able to uh, do something about that in a minute, but uh, I just wanted to uh, say here that Jeremy Fleming, um, we paid attention to because, of course, he's been talking about matters to do with uh, Russia and, and uh, ammunition supplies and bridge, and uh, the bridge attack. We'll, we'll play a little video of him in a moment, but let's have a little look through this audacious report that the Grave Zone gives in, uh, as a complete document uh, something I picked up on was that for a supposedly a military briefing document, this is about special operations, it's unbelievably glossy, um, lots of good pictures, Black Sea maritime operations, um, grand strategic outcomes, uh, Ukrainian territorial integrity, and you can see um, uh, shipping lane densities there on screen. Uh, then we've got a, the Kirsch Bridge raid, 
Uh, destruction of bridge over the Kerr Strait would require a cruise missile battery to hit the two concrete pillars either side of the central steel arch, which would cause a complete structural failure. This will prevent any road resupply from the Russian mainland to Crimea. Well, that can't possibly be true, but anyway, and temporarily disrupt the shipping lane. And then they, uh, at the end, they've got a complete annex about the Kirsch Bridge, where there's some detail about the bridge itself, including pointing out that the um, pillars that the main section of the bridge is supported on are very uh, a relatively small cross section. And this is apparently to uh, make them perform better in, in quite strong um, uh, water flows under the bridge. Uh, but clearly there was a whole document constructed here with the agenda of destroying the bridge. And hey presto, although the attack wasn't successful, that attack materialised. Uh, David, uh, I don't know whether you want to make any comment about the structure of the bridge itself, but uh, please be quick if you can. Well, no, I just want to uh, direct people back to some of the work we did on the Integrity Initiative uh, back in 2018 uh, that, cons that considered uh, Chris Donnelly and team and uh, their plans for the Ukraine and the Crimea. Um, one of the uh, pieces in particular is called Half a League Onwards, a glimpse at the policy protocols of the Integrity Initiative, uh, where we use the charge of the Light Brigade as the metaphor for how Chris Donnelly was planning to respond to Russian moves in uh, the Crimea. OK, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Uh, well, I think we, we've actually got the Sir Jeremy Fleming video available. I, I chose this one BBC Today where he's talking, but let's have a little listen to what he says. And also watch carefully how he is saying it, because I think this man is very unsettled in lots of ways. Well, we believe that Russia is running short of munitions. It's certainly running short of friends. And we've seen, because of the declaration for mobilisation, that it's running short of troops. So I think the answer to that is, is pretty clear. Russia and Russia's commanders are worried about the state of their military machine. They are, to use your words, desperate. They are. The word I have used is desperate. And we can see that desperation at many levels inside Russian society and inside the Russian military machine. Would uh, you know if they were considering deploying their nuclear arsenal? I think any talk of nuclear weapons is is very dangerous and we need to be very careful about how we're talking about that. It's clear to me that whilst we might not alike and in many, many ways abhor the way in which the Russian military machine and President Putin are conducting uh, this uh, war, they are staying within the doctrine that we understand for their use, including for nuclear weapons. I, I would hope that we would see indicators if they started to go down that path. But let, let's be really clear about that. If they are considering that, that would be a catastrophe in the way that many people have talked about. It. To be clear, you'd hope you would see indicators, but you're not seeing them at the moment. That's what GCHQ's job is in part, to look for those indicators. It, it is in part to look for those indicators, yes. Well, Alex, my take is that he looks very unsettled as he delivers that. And that to me says that he's not actually believing what he's saying or he's not believing it 100 percent. I don't I don't know what you feel. That was very similar indeed to the takeaway I had, Brian, from what I would otherwise have featured to uh, 
put Fleming in because, of course, the reason we're, he was on the Today programme is that he gave a speech quite rarely for a GCHQ director yesterday at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, a military and strategic think tank, um, in which he said in a couple of purple passages, the Russians are running out of ammo. And uh, most of the speech was given over to China and how China, and he kept saying it in this same tentative, insecure way, China's a closed society and it wants to pick off lesser countries and make them client states or, or uh, bully them to, into being adversaries. The whole thing is <laughs> utterly hypocritical, obviously, but the whole point is a decade and more ago when I was at GCHQ, the directors didn't give public speeches. And even when they gave internal speeches, it was based on signals intelligence, their own remit. Uh, signals intelligence and cyber security uh, and it was drummed into me even when I was speaking to the cabinet office people who you know sent the papers directly up to the to Buckingham Palace and the Prime Minister the next day do not you're a GCHQ officer do not try to measure uh, morale in Russia or neighboring countries do not try to count bullets that's the job of the bean counters at the defense intelligence service those are people whom Ryan you now uh, rightly lambast when they produce these noddy graphics uh, and don't try to count airframes and uh, and shells uh, because that's the job of the imagery people, the overhead people. Uh, GCHQ and NSA are supposed to be talking about military communications and strategic government communications in the target countries. And that's the one thing Fleming didn't mention. So clearly he has been given a script. And it, all the way through that Rusi talk, which was mirrored by The Guardian, you can find it that way easily on YouTube uh, or the Rusi channel itself. He was saying China's a bad closed society. And I'm so lucky that I live in an open society that doesn't do the kind of things that China does. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you for that. Well, if uh, you like what the UK column is doing, uh, please support us. Please join our community. And of course, you can always support us by buying from the shop. And uh, we're always encouraging people to spread our information. That's why we're reporting. Now, I'm going to say I want to move on to, to uh, talk about matters to do with health and bring Debbie in. Uh, but just very, very quickly, um, David, you, you met some really wonderful people uh, in Israel who are also UK Column supporters. Yes, we've got a, we've got a still here. This is uh, our, our, our gathering. This is the Jerusalem branch of the UK Column Appreciation Society. And we are meeting in, well, where else but Putin's Pub, although it's not called Putin's Pub anymore. They've taken the name off the front. It's just called Pub. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to say to all of those people, it's wonderful to see you and thank you very much for all the support you're giving the UK column. And of course, we are as supportive uh, of people from any country in the world. And my goodness, there's a lot of countries that are now paying attention to the column. Now, very quickly, I just wanted to bring in this uh, email, which came into my inbox this morning. Uh, it was from a counsellor. And they said this, Dear Brian, I expect you have seen this, but I thought I'd send it to you in case you have not. Everything seems to be in a make-believe world of Alice in Wonderland. Even the Chancellor of the Exchequer seems to have joined the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. Thank you for all the time and research you put in each week to bring us the truth. And two things were mentioned. One is the uh, introduction of community networks and in investment zones. I will have to cover those another time. But I just wanted to show here that they were also on the ball because they also sent the link through to the Rob Rose MEP video that we featured on today's news. And uh, there was a little bit of detail I've added because there's a lot of 
contention at the moment uh, uh, around the government's growth plan. And in Cornwall, at least, people are suddenly realising that what they're being told about investment plans uh, have got some uh, have got some downsides. Now, another email that came in was truly incredible. Frailty scores. And this came from a lady called Val. And she said frailty scoring is done electronically by a doctor pushing a button on your medical notes. This gives a score of one to nine. It is then shared on the integrated pathway. I found mine when I asked for the integrated pathway notes. It is a six. I gave no consent for this to happen or be shared. After speaking with other elderly people, they said they'd never heard of this system nor had been asked for consent. The important thing is this system, when used alongside the Coronavirus Act for the elderly, sorry, when used alongside the Coronavirus Act for elderly admission into hospital, can be used as a score to whether the person is, quote, worth saving, and even more mentions putting them on the end of stage pathway, uh, the end stage pathway. And uh, it goes on to talk about the Coronavirus Act and uh, NICE guidelines. Uh, Debbie, I haven't heard about this. The lady concerned is asking if we can look into it, but I think I'm also going to ask live in the news today for UK Column viewers to help dig into this. But what's your reaction to this? Have you come across it before? Yes, I have, Brian. And I think on a previous news, uh, maybe a few months ago, we discussed it and I certainly included it in an article that I wrote for the column um, with regards to the NHS long-term plan because this is actually all written in the NHS long-term plan which is why I'm asking uh, viewers and listeners to really look at look at the plan because it's all out there and including the frailty score indexes and I've also heard from GPs that yes this is absolutely it's a bit like the Rio register for people with mental health there is a frailty score. And I'm guessing if you ask, you'll be able to find yours out. Uh, mine, personally. <laughs> yes, I'm not, sure. No, not yours. I'm, not sure, yours. <laughs> I'm sure it's there. OK, um, Alex, take us through uh, some of the mentions that you've got of the very good things that have been happening with the UK Column website, because, uh, my goodness, there's some impressive changes, all thanks to the support of our viewers. From now on, thanks to a, a nice uh, fluid editorial pipeline that we have, you can expect from Friday, sorry, Tuesday, just before dinner time, British time, uh, just before 6 p.m., a few articles to go up in the normal run of things and possibly a couple more later in the week, a couple of days after that. That's our usual aim from now on. But there will be a daily churn of stories we're watching at the foot of the homepage. So whether you're on a mobile device or a desktop, do always, do always check that at the bottom of the page for a quick flow of uh, third-party articles. Uh, the two that I would like to highlight at the moment, and these are not the only new content items on the homepage, one in the justice section, uh, so you can find these from the uh, topics as well, the topics menu, but it's on the homepage at the moment, um, is by Charles Mallet, who viewers will recall resigned from Gloucestershire Police a while ago. We have more forthcoming from him. Here he's doing an in-depth commentary, including an embedded podcast on the Lawrence Fox publicised case in Hampshire, the arrest of a veteran uh, called Woke Police bad judgment or bad law. The embedded audio discusses even more recent scandals in Cheshire and Surrey with woke arrests. And Charles exonerates the police to some extent and says it's a game of victimhood and gives chapter and verse on that. Uh, another tap will reveal 
the um, other article, which is uh, very interesting at the moment, uh, a lady who's given permission for her letter with name to be published, Frances Adamson in Aberdeen, has resigned from the National Health Service, the local branch NHS Grampian, and has given a lot of reasons for that. In the opinion section towards the bottom of the homepage, there is new stuff, including already up what David mentioned, the blog about no prey zones. The, the first or arguably the second after Manchester has now arrived in Britain in Bournemouth. Uh, outside Ophir Road uh, abortion clinic. Also, uh, yes, just go back a moment. There we are. Uh, from the video menu on the homepage now, due to popular demand, you can now find uh, a, an item under video uh, main menu called UK Column Interviews, the whole backlog of our many new interviews with David, Davey, uh, Debbie and Brian as main interviewers will be up there. So even if they go into other categories, you can always find them there in reverse chronological order if you've forgotten the interviewee's name and want to go through our previous things. A couple of brief mentions of what others are doing. The Scottish, oh yes, this is very important. Uh, no Time to Grieve, Death by Pathway is really, I think, the most heartrending thing I've, I've, I've ever seen us put out an interview with a Romanian old-style nurse who lost her beloved partner. Um, this is Elena Vlaica uh, speaking about the loss uh, of her partner. Was it Steve or Stuart? Debbie, help Stuart, me out here. Stuart. Stuart. Stuart, yes. Stuart, uh, who was basically told, you're not jabbed, so we're not, we're not going to save you. Uh, very, very heart-rending, particularly because she knows all about the agonising death of Midazolam, suppressing your uh, respiratory instinct. The Scottish Family Party uh, has actually uh, used its projector to good effect. I can't show you all the images there because they're too disgusting. But Richard Lucas, the party leader, has said for a while he was going to do this in Edinburgh. He has now gone down to Holyrood and projected onto the Scottish Parliament's ghastly modern concrete wall some of the uh, sexualisation images that the Scottish government is forcing, thanks to the think tanks that run it, uh, upon the young people of Scotland. Uh, another mention as well is that Repent UK, that's repent-uk.org, is calling a day of repentance for the weekend uh, at the end of the month, 29th and 30th of October. Further details if you tap that again, both David and I will be reduce, uh, producing a little video talking about uh, some of the important issues for repentance for Christians. And finally, an update on Hugh McCarthy's piece from Northern Ireland, Why Are We Vaccinating Children? A new author for us, a retired educationalist who's been very well uh, appreciated for his article. He's just sent me overnight this. Hello, Alex. I was in two minds about uploading the article to my LinkedIn site because of the title, obviously. It generated nearly 4,000 views in a few hours but I have now been denied access to LinkedIn regards, Hugh. Okay, Alex, thank you very much. Now, with an eye on the clock, um, I'm just going to uh, jump ahead a little bit um, and bring Debbie in because you've got, Debbie's got some very interesting uh, uh, medical commentary. Um, we have got a section on uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon that uh, David is keen to bring in. David, we'll move that to extra time if you're able to stay with us. Um, if not, we can cover it another day because I know that one's important, but just to make sure we give the uh, medical side some fair hearing. So Debbie, um, take us through this section. You're picking up with an Express article and uh, you've been making some challenges of the system. Well, I have, but first of all, you know, um, last week we showed um, a clip of Jenny Harris, um, which I thought was that day that I was filming it. But for some reason, and I've no clue why, it appeared on Sky News last week. And, and so it was from footage from 2021. So I have to apologise and correct that. However, 
On the flip side, of course, we see that the, the Express were reporting there that we're about to see a COVID surge again. In fact, a, a twindemic. So we've got the flu and, and COVID surging again, and the NHS again is going to be um, overwhelmed. And I think there are quite a few NHS trusts now that are actually bringing back masks and social distancing. But it's not just me that gets information wrong. And on Sunday, when I was watching uh, the Sunday show with Laura Kunzberg, a lot of people were bringing up all sorts of things that, that uh, was being said on that show. But something that was, I believe, being missed, only but a few people saw this or at least picked it up, was Nadim Zahawe making a little bit of an error to which I challenged him for. So if you've got the um, video, maybe just, it's only very, very short. Just listen very carefully to what he says. Okay, and you've made that very clear. And um, one other thing that I think some of our viewers are perhaps starting to worry about a little this morning is what is happening with COVID. Now, the latest ONS stats suggest that one in 50 people have COVID. And Susan Hopkins, a very senior doctor from the UK Health Security Agency, has advised people to be careful about visiting elderly or vulnerable relatives. Is that the government's advice now too? Well, we have to be careful. You remember I was the vaccine deployment uh, minister and, and um, I'll be getting my, my booster, I hope, in the uh, coming weeks as well as I'm over 55. Um, and of course, everybody who's eligible should go and get their, their booster jab. The NHS um, has plans to be able to cope with both COVID and, of course, winter flu as well. Uh, and of course, as I talked about earlier, you know, the, the focus on delivery, the ABCD uh, that uh, Therese Coffey talks about, ambulances so and of course, backlog. But, but Minister, Susan Hopkins has been quite specifically, she said to the public people should be careful again now because of the risk of COVID and avoid visiting vulnerable relatives or elderly people. Do you agree? Should the public start changing their behaviour? Well, number one, if you have elderly relatives or vulnerable people, get them boosted. Uh, two, be sensible. Get yourself boosted if you're eligible as quickly as possible. With the, we've, got, we've bought the Moderna, which, which protects you against both... Uh, COVID and flu, which is a good thing. So get that boost in place, but be sensible about these things, Laura. That's the message. So, Debbie, uh, what did no. you... <laughs> what did you pick That's up That's not on? the message, Minister. Did I hear rightly? Uh, COVID and flu, Moderna? I don't think so. So immediately I wrote to him, um, but then I received a reply back to say, um, if it's urgent to rewrite to the cabinet office. So you can just freeze the screen. I won't read it out there. You can just freeze the screen there and see what I wrote. Number one to Nadim Zahawi, questioning him about was this, uh, is there something in, on the market that we don't know about? Or did he make a, a slip of the tongue? What was going on? But could we have clarification? And then as you'll see, um, I wrote to the cabinet office as a, a matter of urgency. And I got a reply, um, quite surprisingly. I got a reply from both his office, but to say that he had tweeted a redaction and said, you know, basically he's very, very sorry. Um, and there you've got the uh, email that I'd received from his office and the tweet, which says, in an interview yesterday, I misspoke and said the Moderna vaccine protects against COVID and flu. What I meant to say, was that the Moderna is bivalent, which means it protects against both variants of COVID. 
you still need your flu vaccine too, so please get jabbed if you're eligible. So he put out that, which actually is, you know, I'm looking at that and thinking, really, even that is incorrect, because quite clearly, um, he says that it's protecting against both variants. He doesn't name what variants it's and where are the variants coming from. In fact, have we ever isolated anything? That's a whole new discussion. But clearly, Nadim Zahawi, in my opinion, hasn't got a clue what he says. And what's even more worrying is that we've heard from one of the um, support groups that somebody with a vaccine injury went to visit Nadim Zahawi as a constituent and got um, a, a very uncomfortable and unnecessarily cruel response from him in person. So uh, let's just question what the uh, past vaccine minister, if he doesn't know what he's talking about, what hope have any of us got? Well, Debbie, uh, well done for taking that action. Of course, if it was 10,000 letters pouring in to pick him up, um, that would put him under some pressure. But it, you have demonstrated that even one person challenging people over what they're doing and saying can make them react. And uh, that's demonstrating how people can fight back. The other way, of course, is reporting the information. And uh, the conservative woman has put out a lot of good information, very often using uh, statistics that have come out of the UK column, which is good to see. Um, but what have you picked up here? The vaccine victim seeking answers from Dame June Rain. Now, this is the wonderful Charlotte Crichton, who we've interviewed in the past. Um, and Charlotte is, I mean, she's most incredible. Charlotte, Caroline, all of these people, they're running their own support groups, you know. They're not just running a support group and managing their own adverse reactions, but they're also supporting others. They're navigating their own hospital appointments. And yet Charlotte put this article up. Um, questioning uh, Dame June Rain and asking the question that we've all been asking. And if you remember rightly, um, on the column oh, oh, a few months ago, we highlighted the homage to Sir Alistair Breckenridge, which was the lecture where Dame June Rain said that they were expecting 100,000 serious adverse reactions. And Charlotte, quite rightly, and all of us, quite rightly, have been asking Dame June Rain what mechanism is in place to deal with those 100,000 serious adverse reactions. And I'm really pleased to see that the Conservative women have taken Charlotte's article and they've published it and please share it everywhere because she's a very brave woman doing a huge, huge amount of work and they don't get any financial backing. So they've got over 800 members and we're gonna be hearing more from this group soon, but huge applause and a big shout out for Charlotte and the Conservative woman there. Okay, Debbie, and uh, here you've got a document showing interaction between Charlotte and uh, MHRA, uh, where there's oh, been uh, an yeah. inexplicable delay, shall we say. Yeah, you know, and Charlotte hadn't noticed, but she sent me this and I asked her if, uh, if I could show it, because as you'll see, it's dated June, June 22. She didn't receive this until the day before yesterday. And you know what? It's really offensive, I find. It's basically saying, sorry to hear of the experiences of your group, but basically we have nothing to do with the vaccine damage payment scheme. So, you know, 
jog on, basically. Those are my words, not their words. But it seems that the MHRA, they don't have anything to do with the vaccine damage payment scheme. They don't seem to have anything to do with the clinical responsibility of the patient because they've lumbered that back with the GP. And they've got nothing to do with regulation either. They seem to be an enabler. So what actually do the MHRA do? Sorry, I'm on one when it comes to the MHRA, but well, they, they seem uh, to be, like Headley says, shell organisation. They certainly don't protect the public. We can be certain of that. You've got another uh, little segment here, Debbie, where people are challenging the establishment. In this case, they're asking questions of the MP Derek Thomas. I believe he's St Ives um, area constituency. What, what are these four key questions and who, who's asking them? So this, I was very fortunate and I went along to the protests, although a protest, that will, will, that's another conversation too, but this lovely gathering on Saturday in Truro and I was given this uh, letter by the wonderful Rob Ryden and it was a letter that was sent en masse to Derek Thomas, who again is the St Ives and West Cornwall MP, asking four simple questions and I know we're stuck for time today on the news so what I'm going to ask people to do is freeze the screen and on the left, on, on that screen there you see the four questions that have been asked of Derek Thomas. So freeze the screen and have a read of them and then Rob very kindly gave me the answers to those questions and the reply that Derek Thomas has given. So I don't know if you've got the screen. There we go. There's the reply. So I'd ask you to freeze the screen again, because when it comes to a D notice and whether the press have got any embargoes or they're not allowed to discuss things, he's saying no, there isn't. He also talks about the yellow card scheme. I think he could probably be um, better informed on the yellow card scheme. And then he also talks about informed consent. Well, of course, we know there is no such thing as informed consent because nobody actually knows the information with which with which to be able to give people to consent to and he's also saying that if he knows if you know of anybody that has actually had the jab without giving informed consent this is breaking the law so please let him know so um when you maybe go back and rewind and freeze the screen and maybe we should all be writing to him to tell him of people that we think where the law has been broken and they have not received informed consent Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Now, we've got to draw to a close very quickly, but I couldn't resist uh, giving you the opportunity just to flag up Butterfly and to introduce a certain gentleman who appears in the background. Um, is it nice? What is Butterfly about? Right, well, this is going to be a whistle-stop tour of Butterfly. I went to look, how I originally found them was I went to look at a, a physician, and medical conference and I saw that people funding this particular conference that's being held in the Excel was a company called Butterfly. So I thought I'd go and have a look and see what they were all about. And apparently Butterfly has been going for quite a while, since about 2018. But in the UK, it's been um, being rolled out in NHS Trust. And what it is basically is plug into your uh, smartphone and bingo, we've got an ultrasound. Just like that. So you haven't got to go to the hospital anymore. You haven't got to go anywhere and be scanned. A nurse can come to you or a doctor can come to you. And this is your very own portable scanner. So I'm thinking, well, number one, I don't trust all of these medical devices because we've seen the problems with oximeters where people have seen that, that 
the uh, saturation limits are wrong. So all of these devices are very, very worrying. But then we look at butterfly and we think butterfly, the name, not so great, bit dark. Who's rolling this out? Who's behind this huge? I mean, this is this is this is billed as one of the biggest changes in medicine in the last five years. So let's be clear of that. They, they're talking about transformation. So have a guess, Brian, at who might be involved. There um, we go. <laughs> you beat me to it. Well, I had to give a little prompt there, but it's none other than Billy Gates is in the background there. And uh, you've got a lot more detail on this, and we will give you the opportunity to cover that. But just a few steps, and we go from uh, uh, technology rather than love and TLC, as you like to say, coming into the NHS. We're getting all matters to do with electronic devices, artificial intelligence, and we also get Bill Gates. So thank you for that. Let's end there. We've just got two uh, uh, little slides to finish on, and I think the first one's yours, David. Thomas Sowell? Yeah, Thomas Sowell, a wonderful economist, now retired, but still, still speaking out. And um, this actually ties into some of the things we're going to talk about in extra time with uh, Nicola Sturgeon et al., but it's a, a good point nonetheless. The welfare state, he says, is the oldest con game in the world. First, you take people's money away quietly, and then you give some of it back to them flamboyantly. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, for you, Alex, uh, yours was a little bit more explosive. Yes, and I think, in fact, nuclear is the insinuation of this slide, although they're just labelled as bombs. Uh, if it's got nothing painted on the casing, it's a bomb. If it's got a Russian flag on it, it's a bad bomb. If it's got a British flag on it, it is, of course, cuddly, so it's a nice bomb. If it's Uncle Sam, Sam's bomb, it's a good bomb. If it has Slava Ukraini painted on it, it's a very good bomb. And if it has the Magin David painted on it, what bomb? We'll leave it there, I think. Uh, thank you all very much for joining me today. I think it's uh, been a very good news. There's so much to, so much happening, so much to cover. It's difficult to get it all in. Uh, we'll end by saying there will be an extra time in a few minutes. So I look forward to you uh, all joining me then. But a big thank you to our supporters. Uh, we can only do this with your support and it's been your financial support that's not only kept UK Column growing, it's allowed us to expand. And I hope you are beginning to appreciate the new material coming through. There's a lot more to come. And who's it down to? Well, we do some of the work but it's the support of our viewers that has made all this possible. So once again, thank you very much. Uh, that's all from me. Join us for extra time if you're a member of UK Column. Uh, otherwise, we will be back on Friday. Thank you. Bye-bye.